0: Good afternoon. Good evening. It is Sunday, September 15th, and you are listening to the College Football Daily, dedicated to catching you up on and breaking down the day's college football news. I'm Connor Tapp, and today I'm recapping week three of the college football season with 24-7 Sports College Sports editor, Trey Scott. Trey, no... Marquee headliners, as everyone knows, uh, had it beaten into their head a million times heading into the weekend. No ranked versus ranked matchups, but uh, some, some pretty interesting hap- things happening. Some upsets, some almost upsets that I think maybe added to our knowledge of what's happening this season or maybe made us more confused or sometimes in some cases both. I don't know. How are you feeling?
1: Uh, yeah, just like week one, when you think it's going to be a bad slate, you kind of get surprised by a few things. There was a segment of, I guess, afternoon to evening yesterday that was just bananas. Uh, excited to get into it. And I don't I don't know, like, I'm kind of, every week, I, I'm making these grand, you know, takeaways. Like, for USC Trojans are, like, my perfect example of that. Yeah. And then I end up kind of just regretting it. So I'm trying to stay even-keeled with my snap judgments on a weekly basis.
0: Yeah, so let's get into some of the biggest winners and the biggest losers of the weekend, and that need not necessarily be interpreted literally as our biggest loser, or not our biggest loser, but one of our losers of the week. I think what we're going to say is Florida. Uh, they beat Kentucky twenty-nine to twenty-one, despite. Kentucky, according to ESPN's win probability little graph thing that everybody likes to tweet out, at uh, at uh, with uh, a minute and five seconds left in the third quarter, Kentucky has the ball on the Florida 42, and at that point, the Wildcats have a 92.9% chance of making it two in a row against the Gators, but Florida loses Felipe Franks in the po- process, but engineers uh, a big comeback, and... Ends up winning twenty nine to twenty one, but Trey, I don't think anyone's walking away from this feeling better about the Gators as SEC East frontrunners or challengers to Georgia.
1: No, um, yeah, Felipe Frank's out for the season. Backup Kyle Trask played pretty well in relief, and and Dan Mullen said afterward he had also told Emory Jones, uh, a redshirt freshman, a former prized recruit, to also be ready. Maybe they're going to be okay at quarterback. Not sure. They got Tennessee next Saturday. Could be a nice little little test for one of those two backups. But the thing is, I'm not sure like Felipe Franks had not been playing all that well anyway before the injury. Florida fans were kind of hitting an interception uh, early in the game. Florida fans were kind of wondering if he had really taken a leap at all. Don't feel good about Florida at all to win the SEC East. Florida in fact to me the AP poll that just came out a few hours ago still has the Gators at nine. I don't I don't see that at all. Connor. No. They had trouble running the ball yesterday as well. Even
0: even I, before this week, I couldn't believe Texas fell behind them. After- yeah.
1: Yeah. Like I think Florida is rather than being number two to Georgia in the SEC East as far as this, you know, if, if Georgia loses to anyone, it's it's Florida. I feel like Florida's just I think we should consider Florida to be right now a middle of the pack SEC East team yeah. rather than a legitimate contender for the division title.
0: I mean they might end up being number two just for a dearth of challengers, but like it's a pretty wide chasm right now between Georgia and everybody else, it feels like. And Sawyer Smith thought maybe would be a smooth transition uh, given that uh, he had some success at Troy before transferring into Kentucky. But, man, three interceptions in this one, pretty costly. I know Tommy Wilson or or Terry Wilson, excuse me, uh, not a perfect quarterback by any means, but only eight interceptions all of last season. And Sawyer Smith is... Uh, already pretty close to uh, being halfway to that number. So uh, a, a lot of turnovers for Kentucky last night.
1: Um, yeah, he, had some, he, had, he did have some nice moments, though, but Kentucky Kentucky should have won this game. Uh, Florida scored 19 points in the fourth quarter alone. Kentucky should have won this game. So winner this week, Alabama
0: beats South Carolina 47-23. to No big surprise there, although the Gamecocks did cover, and we'll talk a little bit more about them later. But to a of Iloa, you know, I was kind of down on his Heisman prospects coming into the year, just because, I mean, he, you know, he he was the front runner for most of last season, ended up losing, and I think the Heisman is just kind of this award where we want to give it to fresh faces for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. But after watching this game, I'm feeling pretty good about his chances of being the serious contender. I mean, first of all, his production in this game was incredible. 444 yards, that's 12.3 yards per pass attempt, five touchdowns, no interceptions. Didn't, that I saw, really put the ball in danger at any point in this game? And, you know, as we've talked about Heisman contenders, I've my rule has been, like, I don't care about Tua or Trevor torching some random you know, sunbelt team. Like, we're not going to talk about that. But this, and I, and people have criticisms of South Carolina's defense, but, like, to do this against a conference opponent on the road for a game that the opponent is hyped up for, and just, it was interesting. It was impressive. And it was interesting to see, because I think, I think a thing that I've been forgetting and I keep being reminded of is that Steve Sarkeesian is... <laughs> Alabama's offensive coordinator now. And like, how does that change things compared to Mike Loxley? And what I saw was like Tua being given a lot of easy throws and getting the ball to Alabama's playmakers in space. And I think that if you think about the criticisms of Tua at the end of last season, just kind of trying to hero ball it too many times, like, I think Sark imposing a little bit of a more conservative structure on him. Is maybe working pretty well. I don't know. What do you think?
1: Yeah, no, I mean, it's first of all, I think with Tua, the biases were like, it's hard to be surprised. Like, you know, you just talked about, yeah, he did it. He, what he did yesterday against a conference opponent, I'm, I'm pulling up last year's game log. I know he struggled badly against Georgia and against Alabama, but against Auburn, he had 324 yards passing and five touchdowns. Like, the, this is the Tua we're used to. I think, yes, there was a lack of trying to play hero ball. It was feeding. It's really easy when you can just throw a slant to Henry Ruggs and he takes it 81 the rest of the way. Yeah. To uh, it's a one A one B battle right now with Jalen Hurts. I want to see what he does when the quality of competition picks up. That's not a shot at South Carolina, yeah, not but taken. yeah, but I I do think he did kind of re-enter the. Dis- uh, fr- I mean, frankly, it, it gets boring to talk about the same guys for Heisman midway through September that we've talked, talked about all off season. That's why, you know, Jalen Hurts' legitimate chances at Oklahoma where he's through three games exceeded Baker Mayfield and Kyler Murray. That's why that's been fun. That's why Joe Burrow's storyline has been fun. That's why, you know, but that's why Tua, I think, is going to get slept on for a little bit until he does this again and again and again. But I don't think he's given us any indication that he won't be doing that. Yeah, maybe
0: working against him in in a performance like this, you know, it's not a close game really for much of it. But so you don't really get like a Heisman moment. And if Mm-mm. the 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 like high real moment came from his teammate Najee Harris with that incredible touchdown, uh, was that a screen pass or a run? It was
1: I a it was a catch. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay, so I guess catch. he gets credit for that a little bit. But uh, he does. But the, but the plays everyone remembers yeah. are the Najee. You know. Stiff Arm Hurdle and the Henry yeah. Reds torture.
0: Yeah, so uh a lot of star power so that kind of like takes some of the attention away at times so it'll it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. I think this I mean, we've had fascinating Heisman races in recent seasons. I think this might be shaping up to be another one. Um let's get back to the losers column. Uh And uh, we're going to kind of do a catch-all category here for end-game blunders. And there were quite a few of them. Uh, Maybe none more notable than Michigan State. After producing basically zero offense all game between uh, Arizona State and Michigan State, Michigan State has a chance to kick a game-tying field goal and send it to overtime. And they make it, but too many men on the field re-kick after moving it five yards back. and They miss. Uh, Iowa State getting the ball back with a chance to get in position for a game-winning field goal, except they fumble the punt, and they end up losing a weather-delayed Hawk game. And FSU, uh, and I, I don't really, I didn't really have any problem with what FSU did in the final sequences uh, in their 31-24. The, the direct hour.
1: snap to Cam Akers? Yeah, yeah,
0: I mean, the play didn't work. I mean, I, I don't know. I think you'd have to... I don't a little... have a problem with that either. No, but but to me, what was notable about FSU is Willie Taggart's comments about it afterwards, where it kind of sounds like he's throwing Kendall Bryles under the bus.
1: Yeah, he said Kendall called the play. Yeah, you know, there was some controversy, too. The clock didn't stop at seven seconds after Florida State got a first yeah. down. Florida State, that's another game they should have won. Um, they had a lead on Virginia with like 10 minutes left. I'm going to go to Iowa State. That... That first of all, really weird game. Two lightning delays. The whole thing. The whole thing took like eight hours to play. Surprised anyone stayed there. It's a shame the game. It's like a one score, like a one point game. We didn't get the game we were promised with that one. Iowa State's going to be plenty of good team this year. Nine, ten wins. They're going to compete for Big Twelve titles. They haven't won against Iowa in five years. They're just physically overmatched against them. But the must punt blunder in which. A teammate ran into a, the punt returner was like the most Iowa State thing ever, and I say that as someone who spent a year there in 2013 when they went three and nine. Iowa State, sort of in that time before Matt Campbell came and saved them, was infamous for self-imposed miscues, self-inflicted miscues, and that 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 was a a, a, a blast from the past that. To lose a game like that, I'm not saying they would have driven down the field against a good defense in bad conditions in one minute and 40 seconds. I'm not saying that at all. I don't think they would have. That's a terrible way to lose to a rival. Yeah. Um, And now all of a sudden they've lost five straight to Iowa.
0: Yeah, especially for a game where one of the interesting storylines heading in is that both of these teams are set up to have pretty good seasons. It's kind of disappointing that As you said, with the weather delay and just how it ends, you know, you'd like to see it happen not in the decisive moment, not be uh, just a boneheaded mistake
1: like that. Do you feel like Florida State is just finished?
0: You know, what's weird about Florida State is that if you look at, if you just, if you had no context at all and were just looking at their season results so far, you would think. That's kind of tough that those two games went against you, but like those are two good teams. But it is just all of the little things, the the hydration storyline, the the fact that they've blown leads in both of these losses, the fact that their one win uh, is they. I mean, you can't really feel great about a win that you only no. have because of the. Louisiana Monroe missed a point after an overtime. No. So, like, it's just like all these little things mounting up. And, you know, there's no shame in even though you did blow the lead, going on the road and losing to a really good Virginia team. But it's the fact that you blow the lead. It's the fact that you've got, even if Willie Taggart, I mean, maybe you could make a defense of those comments and saying he's not throwing Kendall Browse under the bus. But with the. It, it, the, the perception that maybe you're undermining your defensive coordinator hire by bringing in Jim Levitt and just, it's all these things snowballing and it's just getting to be where it feels like a pretty weird situation that could go sideways on him in a hurry. If it has. So to. I
1: think, I think, and I, we were, we saw this in the opposite direction in week one, too. So they're, they're one and two. And yes, they had a close losses to Boise state and Florida or, uh, and, and Virginia but I, th- they're 1-2 they're on the paper. They're 0-3 kind of in our hearts. <laughs> yeah. And, Connor, Florida State should not be losing to either of the two teams they've lost to. Say what you will about Boise State. Say what you will about what Bronco Mendenhall has done in Virginia. This is Florida State. And Boise State had to travel all the way down to Tallahassee. and change plans in week one. Yeah. Florida State should have lost to Louisiana Monroe. And then Florida State... Loses to Virginia, which is a, a, a perennial doormat. For, and then, yes, all the other extracurricular stuff where Willie Taggart doesn't seem like he really knows what he's doing. This isn't good. I have no faith in this team. No faith in this direction. I I might stick a fork in, the, in this in this tenure.
0: Mm, but wow, yeah, yeah, maybe maybe a preview for Take a Palooza uh, later mm-hmm. this week. Um, so let's talk about a. Sunshine State team that is having quite a bit of success uh, right now. The UCF Knights just absolutely blew the doors off of Stanford, 45 to 27. And that's that's a 17-point fourth quarter from Stanford when the game was already in hand. Um, And, I mean, (laughs) the kind of double-edged sword of this for UCF is that maybe your big non-conference game that you were getting hyped up for and being a a resume item for your college football playoff hopes. I don't know how confident you are that the Stanford team you just beat is maybe even going to be bowl eligible at the end of the season. So maybe that's a worry. But for the moment, you're undefeated. You've just got to get through your AAC schedule now. And according to ESPN's playoff predictor, You've got a better chance of making the playoff at around nine percent than any team in the Pac-12 does. So, uh, UCF Knights have to be feeling pretty good.
1: Well, they're not going to make the playoff. <laughs> they could. I mean, it's it's it stinks for them that that yeah, you mentioned it. They finally get this non or this Power Five opponent, and it's Stanford, and it's a very bad Stanford team, who I have serious concerns about. Um. UCF is really 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 good but there's no there's no way they make the playoff I feel bad for them in that regard but they're fun to watch and they got a special thing going down there
0: so the other side of this is Stanford which has not looked very Stanford like the past two seasons and they were kind of able to get by a bit last season and have it maybe just feel like kind of a regrouping season but now it kind of feels like we're headed downward. And, and, and you an year, when you look crisis. at their the way their talent, like some of their highly rated talent maturing, you would have thought that maybe this is kind of a jumping off point for taking a step ahead.
1: Massive identity crisis. Yeah. They, you know, are you going to be a throwing team or a running team? You don't have to be one or the other. But they can't do either right now. Um, KJ Costello, they get him back. Doesn't matter. He was through completed less than 50% of his passes. They can't run the ball. They're not physical. And Stanford has always relied on these small recruiting classes packed with star-level power. The 2017 class that's supposed to, that are juniors now, that's really supposed to be paying off in droves, Davis Mills, five-star quarterback, Colby Parkinson, five-star tight end, uh, Walker Little and Foster Surrell, wow. five-star offensive linemen. You know, Walker Little's hurt. Foster Sorrell hasn't quite been great. Davis Mills is the backup quarterback. Colby Parkinson is really really good. And when those when, when you're having that core is not delivering the way you expect it to, the way Christian McCaffrey delivered, the way Andrew Luck delivered, you got problems because the rest of your guys are not. You know you're not signing twenty five of those guys. You're signing four of them, and you're filling the rest of the class out with with three stars. Yeah. Um, you kind of wonder. I hate to be that guy because I said it with Florida State. You kind of wonder what what direct David Shaw has to fig has to figure this out because this is only getting worse, and we saw the warning signs last year. This is only getting worse. Yeah, yeah. Um,
0: and I mean, you know, it, it would be one thing to go to Orlando and lose to UCF, but to just never be in the game and be down thirty-eight to seven at halftime—that's that's tough. Um, let's talk about the Big Twelve. Pretty decent. Day for the Big 12, Uh, they had some non-conference games in which some of their middle-class teams looked pretty impressive. So a winner this week, the Big 12's middle class. Let's talk about TCU uh, blowing out Purdue and Kansas State going into Starkville and getting an SEC win against Mississippi State.
1: Yeah, TCU just throttled Purdue. Um, And nobody gave Kansas State a shot against Mississippi State. We all, we all picked Can- uh, Mississippi State on, on the show on Thursday, and we all kind of cited the SEC <laughs> supremacy. Kansas State looks really good. Yeah. The Big 12, you know, we taught this is like the middle class. And on the fringes, you know, we've got on the fringes toward the lower class, you've got West Virginia and you've got Kansas, which had shocking wins this past weekend. And then kind of even above that, you have Oklahoma State. Which struggled with Tulsa a little bit, but then ended up winning uh, comfortably, forty to twenty-one, and has literally a, uh, a trifecta of Heisman contenders in, in their quarterback, running back, and receiver. And their quarterback, or their running back, Chuba Hubbard, uh, leads the nation uh, in, in rushing touchdowns. Yeah, the Big Twelve might not have one easy win on its schedule.
0: Yeah, the Big Twelve, uh, and this is not a. Uh, disrespect to the Big 12 but if it felt like a couple years ago yeah the Pac-12 like had a lot of teams with losses but it felt like a pretty deep conference but now, now it feels like the, the floor is so much lower in the Pac-12 and it feels like the Big 12 is moving to a spot where it's just like every team is pretty good and the fact that yeah. you've got Kansas going on the road and, and on a short week just after you've only managed to score seven points against Coastal Carolina and winning with offense like that. I mean, I I don't know what to make of what Les Miles is doing right now, uh, given the uh, stark variance in those performances. But um, I mean, that's pretty encouraging.
1: I think the big 12 is safely the uh, third best power five conference in football.
0: A loser this week was goal line offense and maybe there were more instances of this and maybe you could possibly even include FSU in this group as well but man i saw so many games where in critical moments and teams inside the five sometimes on the one just could not get it in and sometimes they're shooting themselves in the foot with play call weird play calls and sometimes it was just in Maryland's case they just could not Run the ball into the end zone against Temple, um, and they end up losing that game twenty to seventeen. They had two shots at the end zone. I think the the the, the final time they might have been around the ten or something, uh, but they they got straight up stood up at the goal line uh, for four plays uh, on, on the on the previous sequence. Uh, South Carolina had a chance to cut Alabama's lead to one score before halftime, and. There was uh, a bit of officiating con- controversy with this one with some people thinking that maybe Rico Daddles' knee wasn't down before he crossed the goal line. But uh, on the next play, South Carolina's runs hurry up and Ryan Holinsky fumbles the ball and then, then they decide to go for it on fourth down and don't get it and uh, come away with no points. Uh, and then Pitt, Pitt, <laughs> fourth, yeah. that, that this is maybe the worst one uh, fourth in – I think they were on the one-yard line and down 17-10 to 10 against Penn State, and they decide to kick a field goal from shorter than PAT range. I don't – that's pretty inexcusable to me. And well, Pat they and deserve to miss
1: it.
0: <laughs> yeah, and they miss it. And Pat Narduzzi's explanation afterwards was pretty inexplicable. So I – I'm I'm sure maybe there were some other instances of people really screwing up on the goal line, but man, it's for there was a stretch there in the afternoon where it felt like every game I was watching, people just could not get it done
1: on the goal line. Well, and even uh, Syracuse was never going to beat Clemson last night. Yeah, but Syracuse got to the goal line and also couldn't punch in any any points there as well. Um, So. Clemson now has three goal line stands this season where they haven't allowed any points within like the three yard line. I don't know what it is about. Well, Pitt, it, it makes sense for Pitt. Like sure. Pitt is just offensively like uninspired. They deserve to, to clank that field goal. South Carolina, you're playing an an elite defense. It just, you all in all of these circumstances, I kind of had it in my head. I was like, yeah, they're not going to score. But, Connor, we love the decision in each case to go for the touchdown, right?
0: Yeah, well, I think in South Carolina's specific case, and I'm trying to check myself on this one and, like, play out the alternate scenario. Am I mad if they kick the field goal? But I think because you get the ball back after halftime and South Carolina did end up kicking a field goal on uh, in the first drive of the third quarter, at that point you would have cut it to... Could yeah. Cut it to eight points. So yeah. I don't know. Nah,
1: you're not gonna. You're not beating Alabama with field goals. Texas uh, last week had eight tries within the ten, came away with no points. I was totally. I was totally fine with that. Tom Herman even said it. We emptied the chamber. We're not going to beat LSU with field goals. That game was not going to be won by three points. South Carolina, Alabama was not going to be won by three points. Um, and Syracuse was not going to beat Clemson with the field goals either. Um, and Pitt. Of you know, Pat Narduzzi said. Well, we, we, we they were down seven, and he said, you need two scores to win the game. Like, I guess I get it, but I don't at the same time because if you just score a touchdown, you can go to overtime. So kind of inexplicable that in that scenario. Maryland as well because it's Temple. And in the other cases, I get it, and I understand it, and I'm fine with it.
0: So let's talk about some teams, and we've already talked about a couple of them. Uh, one of our winners this week was teams that we thought were really bad, maybe kind of finding their footing. We had Arizona... Beating Texas Tech 28 to 14, and I think we're starting to see some signs, really exciting for the Pac-12 after dark crowd. That mm-hmm. Khalil Tate of old is back in Tucson. Um, and we already talked about Kansas going on the road to Chestnut Hill and coming away with a very important 48 to 24 win uh, for Les Miles' program, and doing it with offense, two 100-yard rushers, um, and a 100-yard receiver. That's I. I, not something I would have expected. Now, if, if you told me Kansas won that game, I would have thought, okay, so it was like 15 to 12 percent, all field yeah. goals. <laughs> um, yeah. But uh, so that's, that's going to be fascinating to watch. We talked a little bit about South Carolina already. And, yeah, there were points where the margin of this game was really bad, and they do get the backdoor cover. But I was – As a South Carolina fan, if you're new to the program, don't know that I'm a South Carolina fan. Important caveat, I guess. But I was really pleased with what I saw out of South Carolina offensively. And I'm, you know, I I feel like (laughs) Trey, you and Barton have kind of been ragging on South Carolina fans for thinking Ryan Alinsky was going to be some great savior. And I don't think he's that, but... I think a thing that was really stressing South Carolina fans out, whether they realized it or not, was that the reason that their offense was bad was because their quarterback could not hit the easy throws that just keep your offense on schedule. And Ryan Hilinski, you know, if you break it down by yards per pass attempt, kind of a pedestrian day in the end, but was making those easy throws to keep drives alive. And I thought handled himself really well.
1: No, nah, well, first of all, nothing was ever personal about Ryan Holinsky. <laughs> he looked really good. I think it's just that there was a lot of this talk with Jake Bentley a few years ago, too. Yeah. and, oh, and No, is- I mean, it was. if there's a, such a thing as a good loss, this was a good one. And to get South Carolina back on track to maybe make a bowl game, which would be honestly like a, a saving grace for Will Muschamp after that loss to North Carolina, which ends up North Carolina, you know, kind of good um beats miami uh barely loses to wake forest so yes i think the sec east is uncertain enough right now florida tennessee kentucky missouri maybe even vanderbilt vanderbilt can show some signs of life soon although it won't be next week against lsu yeah south carolina can start to split some of these games yeah
0: critical stretch coming up uh at Missouri, and then Kentucky trying to break the streak against the Wildcats. I think you probably got to win both of those games to uh, have any chance of going bowling after dropping that game at the beginning of the season to North Carolina. And then we got West Virginia uh, kind of blowing out North Carolina State. I did not think that
1: the Mountaineers had this in them. Well, me neither. 44-27. Um, <laughs> to 27. Austin Kendall was pretty good. So, uh, So West Virginia, week one, nearly loses to FCS, James Madison week two just gets smoked by Missouri and West Virginia is in the mix. At, they're, they're either the nine or the 10 team and the 10 team big 12, but that's a nice win. Yeah. It's also a really bad crushing one for NC state and for the ACC as far as a macro sense. And I know we'll get to that again in a second. Another ACC team had an even worse loss, I don't – Connor. this is one where I'm not going to – I'm not going to pivot away from my take that West Virginia is going to be very bad this year. No. Neil Brown's a good coach. They lost so much. I'm not pivoting away. I'm saying this is an anomaly, and the first two weeks are what they really are. But we'll see. And regardless, if you're a West Virginia fan, heck, it's really nice to have something to cheer about because this might still – I think this will still be a long season. So let's talk about that
0: uh, other ACC team that had a bad day. Uh, Georgia Tech loses 27 to 24 in overtime against the Citadel. Probably kind of making this sting a little bit more is the fact that the Citadel did it with the mm-hmm. offensive philosophy that Georgia Tech has abandoned and <laughs> struggling to pivot away from. Um, so that maybe makes it sting a little bit more. But you know, <laughs> a couple years ago we saw South Carolina hit rock bottom. And they're 3-9 season with a loss to the Citadel. So I I, I still think Georgia Tech is in good hands with Jeff Collins. I like what he's trying to do with this program. But, man, this is, I guess, a sign of just how far Georgia Tech has to go before they're really doing much of anything.
1: Yeah, and at least they beat South Florida last week. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, of course, this is dripping in irony with the triple option. Yeah. I'm not it's very bad, but Georgia tech is also very bad. And we've seen FCS upsets. We've seen FCS scares. Maybe we should have seen this one coming, but like, man, do you think that Connor, you think like the Georgia tech players were so glad to be done with the triple option that they like <laughs> defensively, they like kind of just exercised it from their brains and kind of forgot they ever did it. Cause that's of all the FCS teams for Georgia tech to lose to. This is the one that hurts the most.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's tough. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I I guess he's going to have a really long leash, and this is should oh, not yeah. bury anyone by any stretch of the imagination. No, no,
1: no, no. And he's recruiting so well, too. Yeah. That's going to help his leash be even longer.
0: So uh, let's talk about our final loser of the week, uh, the Southern Cal Trojans going to Provo, losing 30-27 to 27 to BYU in overtime. Just when we thought the Trojans were back on track and Clay Helton was off the hot seat, and oh man, they're getting the they're getting a the new AD in to replace Willen Swan, and everything is just on trending upward out in LA. But then you go and you go and you lose to BYU, who admittedly pretty good team. Saw them go on the road to Knoxville, and I know Tennessee's not great, but uh, that's a tough place to go and win uh, for a non Power Five team. So. Um, so anyway, BYU pretty good, but still ugh, USC. Like you were saying with FSU, even though the teams that FSU has lost to are pretty good, just for you, just so for USC, like you shouldn't be losing to BYU.
1: Yeah, it's the turnovers here. Uh, Keaton Slovis threw for um, two touchdowns, but he also had three interceptions. BYU didn't turn the ball over once. USC actually out rushed BYU, which is a really great sign. That final interception in overtime wasn't Slovis' fault per se. I mean, like, he should not have thrown it in traffic, but there were some offensive hands on it before it fell into the uh, the clutches of a Cougar, and they were in field goal range. I, I, I'm going to take... So <laughs> <laughs> USC, are they going to do this to us weekly? Like, like, they beat Stanford, and they had a really valiant comeback in that one, and so we said, okay... Here we go, Clay Helton. Here we go. Like, I I, I picked them to beat BYU. I thought they were kind of turning the corner. And I I thought that they had to have that because the schedule now goes Utah on Friday night at Washington and then at Notre Dame. And then then you got a tough Pac-12 South Slate coming up after that, too. Clay Helton, gosh, I don't know. (laughs) I don't want to overreact too much. I'm tempted here. I'm tempted that that's it, given what the next three games. But I also feel like us. US, We're not going to
0: go ahead. Yeah, it's just that it's less that this losing to BYU is an unforgivable sin than not at all. Given what's ahead and the probability that you come out of it with some some battle scars and some losses, it's and you think about what that record looks like. It starts to get pretty. It's not the best case for keeping him around.
1: If USC's schedule didn't work out like this where it's so front-loaded and you had Notre Dame in November like it usually is and you had Washington somewhere else, um, I think Clay Helton could survive through the season for that, but especially with the AD change. Now, if USC can, can mobilize quickly and get an athletics director, and I don't have any faith in that, in that program mobilizing quickly at this point. Uh, Lin Swan was a horrible hire. Uh, but if they do get an AD in place, Connor, in the next few weeks – then I do think it's very, very legitimate that Clay Helton was, would lose his job before the season ends um, to kind of give USC more time to explore and maybe start wooing Irvin Meyer. Um, but, yeah, who knows? I, who knows? Maybe they go out and you know save Clay Helton's job next Friday against Utah, and then maybe they you know lose his job a week later at Washington. I have no idea. We should have seen this coming, though, that they would lose. We should have seen it coming. You can't trust them. Uh, we did not put this
0: on our rundown, so I'm springing this on you. Um, but AP top 25 out today, anything we should care about in here?
1: Uh, no. Florida being a nine is still like the most confusing thing it's in the world, but enjoy it while you can. Ohio State, if, I, if I'm looking at this correctly, is Ohio State sixth? Yeah, because, well, yeah. They're six somewhere, they're yeah. six in the coaches. Are they six no, they in the are, AP? No, they are
0: six in the AP. I was just saying it feels okay. low.
1: Oh, that's way too low. Yeah. Way too low. The Ohio State right now I think is three or four. Yeah. We're going to gonna give Alabama and Clemson because we know what they're going to turn into when they start to really reach their ceilings. Clemson on offense, Alabama on defense. They're number one and two the rest of the year. Georgia looks great, but so does Ohio State. I, I think six is way too low. No chance Ohio State wouldn't beat one of the one of the five teams in front of it on a neutral field in my opinion.
0: You know, as I as I look at the top of this AP poll, I'm feeling pretty encouraged that we have. I think we go about six deep on teams. May maybe if you want to squint and include Notre Dame, we could talk about seven. Like six teams that I like feel pretty dang good about as like national yes. title contenders. Whereas it's
1: nice because it's nice because usually we're like, well, there's two teams and everyone else is horrible. Yeah. So, yeah, for, for this week, we should, we should include Notre Dame in that list because maybe we won't get to next week as they head to Athens. Notre Dame looked good, too. There seems to be much more parity in college football this year or maybe the potential for parity. And maybe that's my big week three overreaction is that there are a lot of teams outside the big two yep. that are all playing really well. Um, but, you know, it's still so early. <laughs> One other... Should we talk about... Alfano, real quick. Yeah,
0: going to happen in between a weird and on our off day um, from doing the podcast. Uh, so, Antonio Alfano, the number one overall player in the top twenty four seven for the class of twenty nineteen, uh, plays at Alabama. Well, he, he did, I guess, in the transfer portal. Now,
1: what? What do we make of this situation? All right, so first of all, not quite in it yet. I think that's, I would just chalk that up to requesting to enter it on a Friday and and the compliance paperwork not being done over the weekend. Uh, It's really, it's really bad and it's unfortunate. You know, Antonio had some issues off the field during the recruiting process that kind of prevented his rise until the very end of it. He shot up from 44 to like eight to one in the last two months of the of the recruiting process. He was awesome in San Antonio at the All-American Bowl. He was awesome. He looked like the next Quinn and Williams. Now Alabama, they got plenty of guys. DJ Dale looks great as a true freshman. But Alabama now, Connor, the last two in its last two classes, it's top sign guy. Uh, Yabia Noman 2018, Antonio Alfonso in 2019 – has gone, has left. And of course, there's a chance that Antonio Alfano stays at Alabama after exploring his options. In the transfer portal, his, his family says they'd like him to stay at Bama. D- don't really know what to... Uh, he wasn't getting the playing time he wanted. Also, clearly had some stuff going on back home. It's unfortunate because he is a good kid, and Alabama is a place where that talent eventually is going to rise to the top. Even if it takes two or three years, Like, eventually those guys get on the field Sean hands in the NFL like those I feel better about Antonio Alfano's chance to reach his potential at Alabama than I do if he goes back home to New Jersey and goes to Rutgers or mm. you know goes to Maryland and follows Mike Loxley there you know joins the Nome Nomad Houston. yeah
0: interesting situation and not something we're really used to seeing in Alabama but I suppose it is a new reality of the transfer portal era. That's gonna do it for today's episode of the College Football daily. We'll take Monday off and be back on Tuesday for the next edition. In the meantime, if you appreciate what we're doing here at the College Football Daily, try to do one thing that helps us raise the visibility of the show, whether that's just telling a friend to check us out or leaving us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. Uh, Until Tuesday, that's going to do it for the College Football Daily.